just going to say phrasing, Craig. Wait, what did I say? You're, you love being very organ-centric. Oh, <laughs> the average age of the podcast host here is 15. Hey, Prague fans. Welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Prague Podcast Project. My name is Tony, and as always, I'm joined by... Craig. Lee. We are three friends and Prague aficionados who promise that we're professionals. We're here to talk <laughs> about the history and the craft of progressive music while sprinkling in our always unvarnished opinions of the music and the personalities that make this genre so great. You can find us on the platform previously known as Twitter and Instagram at UP3Show or on the Mastodon.social server at UP3Show. You can also find us on our homepage at UP3Show.com where you can find back episodes all listed there. It's a cool little widget there. Sometimes we put extra multimedia content out there. If you'd like to reach out to us via email to give us feedback or suggestions, you can email us at UP3Show at gmail.com. And if you just can't get enough of the three of us, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our podcast page at up3show.podbean.com or wherever it is you get your podcast. Or invite us to dinner. If you invited us to dinner, you'd get an episode whether you want it or not. Definitely. <laughs> you can give us all your feedback. We just roll tape when we get there. If you do all of this, it'll make sure that you never miss an episode and help other prog fans find the show. Hey guys, what are you up to? It's been a month. It has been a month. It's been 30 days. Lee, since I'm seeing you right now on the screen, what have you been up to in the last month? Yeah, staying super busy at work, still working on animations and videos, which is pretty cool. We just got done with a reorg, which is causing a lot of stress in my group, but I think we're going to come out of it all right. I may even come out of it with a promotion. So we'll see. And unfortunately, not a lot studio or music-wise, just because I've been too busy at work. I totally feel that. Yeah. Craig, how about you? So my house is getting painted this week. Outside or inside? Outside. Mm. It's been nice all week, so they've been able to pull it off. And it looks great. And they painted the doors today, and then they left. And about a half an hour ago, I went to close all of the doors, and none of them close. So that's interesting. So either did they put the right door back in the right place, or did they put the right hinges back in the right place? Because I've experienced both of those. And thought about that. You know, I noticed that the doorknobs are on the other side. I think they put it back upside down. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. They didn't do that. I think they just used a shit ton of paint. That's a thick coat right. of paint, man. I mean, honestly, with the clearances <laughs> that doors generally have, if they use that much paint, you're probably indestructible at this point. My house is 100 years old, and it is built a very high tolerance. Okay. And I'm also getting ready to go to New York, see my girls. I'm taking a week off, and then I'm going to work for a week from an Airbnb in Catskill. All right. That'd be fun. Going to the Borscht Belt. How about you, Tony? What have you been up to? Doing a lot of work stuff. We've been traveling. A few weeks ago, I was over in Ireland for a work event. I'm about to go to Singapore for a work event. We did a work event here in Colorado. The unfortunate grind of just the stuff going on. One thing that neither of you two said that I want to bring up is we went to a concert last weekend. Yes, we did. Oh, shit. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Yeah. And we saw Arch Echo at a dive bar here in Denver. That was totally cool. Us and 17 of our closest friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was like <laughs> max capacity, all 17. Yeah. Yes. Like, it it was, was a very small venue. Good Lord, Jesus that keyboard Christ. player. Joey Itzo. He is so good. Is unreal. So many notes. So much accuracy. Mm-hmm. That and Lee, your favorite keyboard showed up again. Yes, Arturia. Did you get one yet? Can't find one to play around here. I went to Guitar Center and they're like, oh, we don't put them out on the floor. Are they expensive? Are they premium? Well, I'm interested in the Mark II, which is the MIDI controller, but it does have some built-in sounds, so it's a little more pricey. It's no Nord. Yeah, but I just really want to see what that key bed feels like. Diego just raves about the way their software is built, so I really want to see one. Well, I mean, you were right there in that dive bar. Like, you could have just reached over and played with it. <laughs> and you say that, but I actually walked and stood behind him, probably seven feet behind him. Yeah. And mm -hmm. got to film him that close. And they will never be in a bar that small again, I guarantee you. Yeah. So one thing I noticed, Lee, I was wondering if you caught this. I never saw him change a preset. Yeah. 
I saw the same thing. I actually went up and examined the rack before they started. Mm-hmm. I was looking for a laptop with main stage or magics on it, but I didn't see it. But there were a couple of modules I did not recognize. So you might have had a pedal. Yeah. Yeah. They had a, an interesting band, Stellar Circuits, open up for them, whom I totally loathed live. Did not, <laughs> yeah. did not right. like them live yeah. at all. Did you want to varnish that at all? Nope. Yeah. Sounded like <laughs> the worst combination of Linkin Park and 311. And then I went and I bought the studio stuff, and they're actually really, really good on the studio album. Okay. That's cool. Live, it felt all standard, straight ahead, 4-4 pop rock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's mostly that on the album, much more polished, but has some decent little proggy bits in it. Audience was very receptive to listening to what they were doing. It was very headbangy. Yeah. Yeah. That vocalist, Ben Bedick, he was dying for a mosh pit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he tried to pull a mosh pit out of those 17 Bless people that heart. were in that bar, but it was just not happening. Yeah, definitely. But that was fun. I enjoyed it. It was a last minute thing. All three of us were able to get together. It was pretty awesome. So yep. had a great time with you guys. It was great. Lee, I'm going to come back around to you again. What have you been listening to since last month? I am listening to something very unusual, and it's not what I expected to be listening to. I still owe the listeners a listen to Stephen Wilson, Harmony Codex, and Timek will be out middle of this month. Mm-hmm. But I picked up an album called Orion, The End of Suffering. I saw some ads for this on Facebook. It is the debut album of Ben Jones. It's a concept album, and it is self-produced, self-financed, and it's good. Usually a self-produced debut album, especially a concept album, is just not necessarily that great. But I am so impressed with this. I reached out, and he agreed to an interview. So I'm going to make a bootleg on just this one album. Awesome. I've just found it to be entirely fascinating And that's all I've been listening to the last two weeks, getting ready for this interview. Oh, very cool. Awesome. That's really cool. How about you, Craig? What have you been listening to? And I know it's jazz. So this one is interesting. It's a vocalist from Northeastern U.S., and her name is Sarah Elizabeth Charles. And the reason I want to bring her up is in one of my combos, we're doing a song that she's doing, which is a Miles Davis tune called Nardis but she's doing it in 5-4. Oh, wow. Our next show, we're going to do a song in 5-4, and the way it sounds right now is described as sneakers and loose change going around in a dryer. (laughs) (laughs) That is certainly a description. That's uh, mostly our drummer, who's not really a drummer. He's an incredible trumpet player, but he's our drummer this time around. It's a struggle for all of us to play in 5-4, and you wouldn't think it would be, but The way the song goes, it's so airy and light, it's hard to find one. Um. Anyway, the urban legend around the song Nardis is interesting. It was written by Miles Davis, and the urban legend is when he showed it to the band, the piano player named Hank Jones said, I ain't playing this crap, I'm a Nardis. Oh, that's good. So Miles decided he was going to call it Nardis. Very cool. (laughs) That may or may not be true, but that is the jazz urban legend. Okay. You know, I kind of love a good urban legend like that. Right. Yeah. It's good to run with. Sometimes I don't want them to be disproven. Right. Yeah, I I, I haven't Googled I'm it. good with that. <laughs> what have you been listening to, Tony? Obviously, as we're about to talk about, a lot of transatlantic. Right. But also, I keep coming back to the Siberium. So I'm still on this prog metal kick, but more on the metal side of it. And so just recently in the past few days, I've been very much listening to the Siberium a lot. I really fell in love with them when we saw them in Boulder. And then I had a day off a couple weeks ago, and I went to local CD shop Angelo's. So shout out to Angelo's. And as I normally do, I try and take a risk on something. And I picked up the first album from a Swiss band called Ad Infinitum. This album is called Chapter One Monarchy. It's the first in a sequence of concept albums. And it's pretty awesome. It's female-fronted prog metal. Ooh, I like that. Sounds a lot like Oceans of Slumber, for those that know them, or a little bit like Heidi from Amberian Dawn in Dark Sarah. Okay. Really liking them. Very cool. Lee, why don't you bring us up to date on all the prog news and new releases? Prog news. Sadly, we have to start with the death of Charlie Domenici at the age of 72. He was not Dream Theater's first vocalist, but first one on a studio album with When Dream and Day Unite. Hmm. Caligula's Horus has announced a brand new album called Charcoal Grace coming out January 26th. 
and they have released a single called Gollum that I like quite a bit. Me too. Yep, because I'm a huge Caligula's horse fan. And in parallel, Earthside is releasing their sophomore album called Let the Truth Speak, and that comes out November 17th, so that'll be out by the time this episode has hit your ears. And the reason I put those two together is they are going to tour in the U.S. 20 dates so far, and I'll be damned if there are no dates in Denver. I know. I am going to probably have to figure out a road trip. Road trip. I am dying to see Caligula's horse. Where are you thinking of going? Because me too. I looked at the dates and the obvious one for me is Phoenix, Mm -hmm. but it's too close to something else I have booked. So I don't think I can do it. Are they coming to Salt Lake? No. There's a bunch in California and there's Phoenix and then there's East Coast. It's the usual kind of US thing. Yeah. I think I'm going to try and talk to my wife and see if I can make the LA date. I really want to see them. I really want to see both of them. I can't believe our side's going live. Osric Tentacles, a prog band we don't talk about enough on this show. They have been around since the late 80s. They have a brand new studio album that came out in mid-October, Lotus Unfolding. Yeah, I love those guys. Is this new music or is this remasters? No, it's new music. Dude, I listen to Hawkwind and I can't go near Osric Tentacles. It's like way too far out there for me. Really? (laughs) Yeah, what do you have to say about them? They're sort of jam band-ish. It's not as EDM as you might think. There's a lot of tasty guitar and a lot of tasty synth. Okay. No, I'm nice. Divergilio, Morse Jennings, they have done their second album, and it's called Sophomore. Clever. I didn't pick up either of these albums, so I don't know that much about it, but it is getting a lot of press, so there you go. And again, this album, Orion, the End of Suffering, that I was just talking about. Ben did confirm with me that the first pressing has sold out. So right now, the only place you can get it is digitally on Bandcamp. Hmm. But I'm very impressed with it, and I will do more to get this in a bootleg for you. Nice. Temek's album, Terror Management Theory, will be out November 17th, again, after this episode has hit your ears. And I need to clear up an error from last episode's news. I talked about this band, Joseph Magazine, from Poland, and how they had crowdfunded enough to do a second album, Source of Creation, Actually, what they have clarified is Joseph Magazine is no more, but a couple of those guys stuck together and they created a new band called Source of Creation. Uh. And their new single is called Joker. So go give that a listen. And I don't know any news of a new album yet. And finally, Spock's Beard has announced some tour dates in the UK in early January and then one date in Utrecht in the Netherlands. And that's interesting because they haven't released anything since Noise Floor in 2018. So maybe a harbinger of good things to come. Who knows? And that's what I got for news. Thank you, Lee. So as we usually do, Craig, why don't you tell us about something unheard of? Let's talk about something unheard of. Have you ever heard of a thing called a Samal? Samal? S-A-M-M-A-L. No. No. It is a botany term covering mosses, liverworts, and hornworts, and it's from the word Samalkazvi, and it's of Finnish origin. Okay. Also of Finnish origin is the band called Samal. <laughs> so let's listen to a clip of them. That's a hell of an Did intro. You like that man, intro? I gotta say. Yeah, I gotta give you credit <laughs> there, yeah, Craig. That's pretty You okay. really pulled that off. They are either Finnish or Scandinavian. I was trying to figure out what the difference is, and I just couldn't, so... Wait, do you know what Scandinavia is, Craig? I think it's a region. It is a region in which Finland exists. Okay, so maybe they're Finnish. But speaking of Finnish, let's finish playing this clip. early pink floatish yeah the reason i wanted to play that clip they're kind of like retro prog the way i found out about these guys is tony you shared a reddit thread with me of bands that might be worth considering for unheard of Mm -hmm. so i picked these guys because i figured i've been doing so much prog metal and guitar heavy stuff I thought these guys were interesting because they're billed as being retro sounding. Mm -hmm. And the organ in there really does make it sound kind of retro. Yeah. Yeah. And it had kind of a Pink Floyd vibe, you know. 
It does. So that was from 2014. And not all their stuff is retro. And as they go through time, they start getting maybe a little bit more. Wait, they're time travelers? They are time travelers. They're from the future. And uh, what? No. <laughs> I was going to riff on water going extinct. <laughs> they are not time travelers. They are from the present. Here's something a little bit more current. It's got a retro feel to it. It does. It still kind of has kind of a retro, you're right. But it has more of a beat, and it had a little heavier on the guitar kind of thing. And Right. And I listened to a bunch of them, and very song-oriented, not real long-form, proggy kind of stuff. A lot of vocals. Most of them are in that language, whatever it might be. It's very clearly Finnish on their band camp. Man, cool. Yeah. Except their most recent album, which is from last year, they have English lyrics as well. Uh. There are three albums. Their first one is self-titled Samal. The second one, Tony, you want to take a crack at it? Mirsky Veritoy. Mirsky Veritoy. I'm like the Swedish side. Got it. Yeah, right. Exactly. And that's from 2015. Their 2018 release is Suliki. And their 22 release is called Aika Laula. And we do this in jest. I mean, we're having fun. Hopefully not too much at their expense. Because I do think the music's good. It is really good. It's not necessarily my vibe, but it is good. Yeah. It's probably closer to my vibe because I kind of like the classic prog stuff and I love an organ-centric thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's give a shout out to the musicians. Their original lineup was John Eric Kivinimi, Jura Salmi, Juhaney Lane, and Lasso Lano, and Thomas Carivara. The lineup currently is really down to three people, Jura Salami, Janu Kivinimi, and Thomas Carivara. And only Jura and Thomas are uh, left from the original band. So let's do one last track. This is from their album from about a year ago, again, called Aika Lubabalaba. That one kind of reminded me of Riverside, but this being like the 27th time I've listened to this little clip, it sounds like really old Pink Floyd. Yeah. I'm getting a metal vibe, M-E-D-D-L-E. Right. Yeah, I mean, I get the Pink Floyd, I get your Riverside. I also get a little bit of Adam Jones' guitar tone from Tool. Mm-hmm. Oh. They're not the most prolific band in the world. It doesn't look like they're touring again. They've just got those four albums. There's also an EP. They are up on Bandcamp, so if you search Samal, S-A-M-M-A-L, and check them out. They're good. I mean, I like them. I really enjoyed them. They also have a bunch of YouTubes and a Facebook presence, so there you go. Cool. Back to you, Tony. Awesome. Thank you very much, Craig. You know, when we got together and we were doing planning for this season, one of the bands that I've wanted to talk about for a while, but didn't really know how exactly I wanted to cover it, was Transatlantic. I have a lot of mixed feelings about Transatlantic, some of them stemming from certain personnel in the band, some of it being that I found them at a particular time and place, and that they were very much part of my gateway into more traditional prog. Hmm. And so what I ended up doing was deciding to put down my thoughts as a bit of an essay. And so most of what you guys will hear tonight is mostly me reading through my essay, trying to not necessarily make a case. There's not necessarily a thesis to it other than to just chronicle my experience and my reflection on the transatlantic discography. So as I described in our very first episode, I originally came to Prague itself, like the big, big Prague by Arion, followed very quickly by Dream Theater. But when I was getting into Dream Theater, I saw an article that was mentioning this reference that Mike Portnoy, member of Dream Theater at the time, now once again, 
was also as part of the super group called Transatlantic. And at the time, I knew nothing of Neil Morse, the evangelism aspect to it. I didn't know who Royna Stolt was. I didn't know who the Flower Kings was. I didn't know Crete Wavas. I hadn't yet gotten in the Marillion. So all of this was very Greenfields for me. And at the time, the most recent Transatlantic release was The Whirlwind. So I was in a local bookstore. I got for a relatively cheap price the deluxe edition of The Whirlwind. This particular version of the album had that B-side CD, and it included other unreleased tracks. But importantly for me, it included the cover of The Return of the Giant Hogweed, which at that time I had really no experience with at all and Mm -hmm. how close that version of that track is to the genesis version but how independent it is from the genesis version is uncanny to me Mm -hmm. so just imagine for a moment coming from the world of metal neophyte tony listening to something like hogweed and just having my mind blown and so with all of that i sat down and i listened to the whirlwind and i was hooked totally and completely everything about this album appealed to me it was long double cd it was a concept album the playing was impeccable and an important thing that really appealed to me is that they took an artistic choice of presenting the album as one long track separated over two discs and that really delineated the various movements the reason I mention this is because Arion did something very, very similar on the Theory of Everything, where it was a two-disc album, but it was presented as one track. And so this felt very familiar listening to The Whirlwind. And to say that I felt instantly and thoroughly in love with Transatlantic is putting it mildly. Once I got this album, I just listened to it over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Over time, of course, you're going to learn things about the members. That's about the time when Mike Portnoy was starting to leave Dream Theater. It's when I started to learn about Neil Morse and the evangelism side of it. And so even recently, I question how Neil Morse and Mike Portnoy exist in the same band. But the fact that they do it and do it so well is strange. Interesting. Why do you find it strange? Can you say more about that? I think the reason I bring that point up is because as we're talking about Neil is a born-again Christian, specifically an evangelical-style Christian, and that type of Christian, at least here in the United States, is very controversial, sometimes confrontational, even to other followers of Christianity. And Mike Portnoy is obviously and historically very open about being Jewish, and I just wonder how that dynamic is, because the evangelical Christian overtones are just so open and obvious. For me, it just feels like it would be really intimidating, maybe. Maybe Mike is just a better human being than I am. But that's where my brain went with that comment. It's just like, how does that dynamic work between the two of them and the songwriting and the content? Right. No, that makes sense. I've often wondered that myself, actually. Mm -hmm. And with that preface, let's talk about the history of this band and how they've come to be over time. Picture this. It's late circa 1995. And Mike Portnoy discovers the band Spock's Beard, then fronted by Neil Morris, in their album The Light. They got in contact, and after getting to know each other, Dream Theater queued up Spock's Beard to support them on a future tour. Hmm. Lee and I have talked about this. Finding these dates around this late 90s, early 2000s, the chronology of that is a little weird. Yeah. But somewhere in there... Spock's beard gets lined up to support Dream Theater on a tour, and in the intervening time, Mike goes, Hey, Neil, I've got a crazy idea. Let's start a band. <laughs> and the original idea was that it would be Neil, Mike, and then they would also have Jim Matthews from Fate's Warning join. Right. But it ended up being that Jim couldn't participate, so they eventually reached out to Roy Stolt, who was then of the Flower Kings, still is, and mm-hmm. Preacher Wavas of Marillion. Right. Royna had met Neil when the Flower Kings had supported Spock's beard in the late 90s, and Pete was brought in because Mike was a big fan of his playing in Marillion. So there's starting to be this Mike Portnoy at the center of this storm happening where he's bringing in all the people that he knows. So Mike Portnoy's doing all this stuff, and it's not too far from the time he gets thrown out of Dream Theater. Yeah, he doesn't get thrown out, just to be clear. Yeah, let's, let's, yeah he, he walked <laughs> he away. He walked away. Oh, he did? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Really? Why? We did that in an episode. Tony and I both yeah, did. Yeah, I know, but I was... Yeah, I wasn't paying attention. Go ahead, say it. <laughs> Not paying attention. 
it's a good reminder, Craig. And when I get to that time frame in this, mm-hmm. I'll try and talk a little bit about that. Okay. It's adjacent to the transatlantic story. Yeah. And has some impact. Well, it seems like it would be. That's why I asked. So I'll get to that. Okay. Thank you. In the summer of 99, the now formed members of Transatlantic went to Millbrook Studios in Millbrook, New York, and they recorded the debut album that would be called Simpty. Right. If you've just seen the acronym SMPTE. So as a geek, I want to take a brief aside and talk about how geeky this name is. So we pronounce it SMPTE, and it's a reference to the SMPTE standard that's used in motion pictures. And so one of the things that I learned is that this is used for time codes for audio, like syncing it up to film. But in the standard, the way that they break out time, it's hours, minutes, seconds, and then frames. And so the sync up of the time code is entirely based on how many frames per second you're shooting in film. There's not just one FPS that you use for film. So it was very interesting to me that this standard got co-opted in a way to be used in audio production. And the reason I mention this is I wonder if this was a intentional or unintentional nod to the sound that I personally get from Transatlantic. I feel like they have a bit of a cinematic feel to them in that the way it's produced and put together. Isn't it all their initials? Yeah, it's their initials. It's uh, Stolt, Portnoy. Stolt, Morris, Portnoy, and Travis. Yeah, yeah. Yep, and then just a little E at the end. I think that's why they picked it. That's true, but they could have picked a lot of things, right? Yeah. Why did they align it with Simpty as the standard? Is this the first UP3 conspiracy theory? No, I think this goes... No, we've got lots of conspiracy oh, okay, theories, good, dude. Okay, okay. So in terms of the album itself, it's dominated by the lead track called All of the Above, and it weighs in at a couple seconds short of 31 minutes. And it definitely, to me, sets the tone for all Transatlantic that will follow. This band found their sound, locked in their sound, honed their sound, all in the first album, and by large measure, haven't really deviated from it. Generally, this first album, while the sound is there, it feels a little more loose and almost has a little bit of a jam feel to me, but it's definitely apparent throughout the album that these are players that know exactly what to do, and they know how to play it, and they know how to give each other room to express at different places. Does Neil write all the songs? No. It's primarily co-written, but I think this first album sounds heavily like a Neil Moore solo album. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at, is he kind of has a particular vibe of what he sounds. Yeah. Yeah, so officially, all songs are credited to all members of the band, except for We All Need Some Light, which is credited to Neil Morse. Yeah. And then In Hell Twas and I, which is obviously... Yeah, old Progo Harem. But arranged by the band. Mm-hmm. So the All of the Above track, the predominant track on the album, was co-written by the band. Gotcha, okay. There's two samples that I want to play, because here's one thing to know about Transatlantic. They go lots of places, and as we've talked about, it's hard to find a clip that captures an entire track. Here's a part I think sounds very jam from this album. That segment keeps going on forever. But then on the exact same track, we get this sound. Love that. Yeah. Now, what's really interesting, especially in that second sample, mm-hmm. is that there's something in that that Transatlantic does all the time. They either have a really big, bombastic sound, and then they transition into this very quiet and melodic segment. Mm-hmm. Or they'll take the quiet, melodic part and build up and then hit you with a freight train of sound. For me, it's one of the signature things I expect to find on a Transatlantic record. 
Yeah, that's great songwriting. Yes. It keeps it interesting. I love it. Now, obviously, the other tracks on the album are no slouch either. There are other long songs, but this one is the, by far the longest. And when I was first putting together this essay and the concept of this episode, I was talking with Lee, and Lee was like, well, when we get to talking about Simti, that was a big time, and I have a whole lot of thoughts about that. And so, Lee, do you mind expanding on that? Sure. So I've been a huge Foxbeard fan from the very first, from the light in 1995, largely because I think Neil Morris is an astonishing musician. His composing and playing is just stellar. Mm -hmm. And it's the same year that Foxbeard 5 comes out in 2000 that Simpty comes out. Mm -hmm. And if you line up 5 by Foxbeard alongside Simpty by Transatlantic, the layout is very, very similar. The opening track of Five at the end of the day and the opening track of Simpty, all of the above, are the long, heavy pieces that really draw the emphasis. And both of those songs, the lyrics, are really a lot about our place in the meaning of life. Now, at the same time, I had a pretty bad medical scare, and it was pretty severe. And I would go out in the countryside and take these really long meditation walks over several hours. Mm -hmm. And so I listened to those two songs at the end of the day, and all of the above, over and over in that time period. I mean, there's lyrics like, suddenly you stop because your feet just won't walk, like there's someone awaiting. The moon seems alive and looks down on your life, just to say, it's all right. Hmm. So I can still listen to that album, and it can take me right back to that time. It's very emotional for me. All of the above, the second track, We All Need Some Lights, same exact thing for me. Hmm. So very, very important album for me for lots of reasons. I actually have a very similar relationship to The Whirlwind. Yeah. I can put on that album and start listening to it, and I am transported to a different time and place. Hmm. Yes. I can zone out. It's a very therapeutic zoning out. Yeah. I think this is going to get woven in here. I cannot explain why, because I don't really have this experience with other bands, but I have a very emotional connection to this band and their music. Yes. And it's unexplainable by me. Well, for me, it's in the composition by Neil Morris, both the music and the lyrics. It is not trivial music at all. It's designed to convey an emotion, I think. Mm -hmm. After Simpty comes out, what we see is the beginnings of a pattern that happens where they release an album and then they tour it, kind of. This is not a band that goes on these big, super long tours. They do small sets of intimate dates, and then they record one or a couple of the dates and turn it into a live album. Yeah. For Simpty, they went and they did Progfest 2000, and because they didn't have a huge catalog of their own yet, they played a lot of the album, and then they were playing other tracks like Strawberry Fields Forever, Watcher of the Skies, Magical Mystery mm -hmm. Tour, yeah. Firth of Fifth. They were playing a lot of really cool other prog standards. Most of their live albums come from European dates. When you look at their North American tours, they're very sparse. They do many more dates in Europe when they do tour. We've talked ad nauseum about that before. And this particular live album was taken in Philadelphia, United States. This first live album was called Live in America. And as they got through this initial release of Sympty and then Live in America, they went and they recorded their second album in 2001 called Bridge Across Forever. Now, for me, listening to the second album, this is where Transatlantic goes from being a side project unto abandoned and empty completely unto itself. First album, I have a hard time finding fault with it, but the second album is even tighter. The album is even better than Simpty, in my opinion. And there is now this very quintessential Transatlantic sound. It's equally comfortable jamming for 20 minutes and then going super mellow and melodic for 15 or 20 minutes. Lots of callbacks and variations on motifs and taking things and breaking them down to their most minimal form or just doing vocals and a piano for a little while. A really cool thing I found is one of the tracks on the second album is called The Sweet Charlotte Pike. Love that. And it actually has a part in it where they start, you kind of hear the studio banter, they play for a minute or two, and then someone stops and they're like, okay, do this. And then they start over. It's really cool. I really like that flavor of it. So for this album, I'd like to play for you a brief sample. And this is from Bridge Across Forever. I've had this dream all my life That doesn't live in black and white 
has no end, it just begins in distant sands and magenta winds. Love it. Prague or not Prague, that's just beautiful music. That's great songwriting, man. But for me, the real standout on this album is actually Duel with the Devil. Yes. And so I tried to find the best sample I could for this one. Stolt is really one of my favorite guitar players. Mm. He has got such great tone yeah. and phrasing, and it's just beautiful. Love watching him play. And I think a lot of Royna is what I pick out as the transatlantic sound. Mm-hmm. Not always, because they give plenty of room to play for everyone. Yeah, yeah. But the guitar is typically front and center. So is the keyboards. Yeah, definitely. It is, right? I mean, it depends on what you're listening to. It's kind of like the an ensemble cast versus a star vehicle. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, even in that one sample, they, they did the normal transatlantic track. Yeah. There are minutes and minutes of that mellow part, and then it builds, and then there's this crescendo, and you go to this big part for a while. I just love that. Now, Craig, were you listening to Transatlantic at this time? Yeah. Oh, I love them. Yeah. I don't have the visceral connection you guys do. But I was listening to him a lot when I was doing a lot of bike riding and training for distance rides. Mm. And I would just put on some transatlantic. Bridge Across Forever is probably one that I listen to most. Kaleidoscope, maybe not so much. Whirlwind, quite a bit. But I had to ride for like four or five hours a day. Mm -hmm. And I would listen to him over and over again. Yeah. Because they're all nice long albums. And it's like, oh, great. I listened to it three times. And that's, you know, 80 miles. What about you, Lee? What were you getting out of transatlantic at this time? Did the second album impact you the way the first one did? It did for a very different reason. I remember at the time, people had complained that Sempty was very heavily Neil Morse. And so the band wanted to make Bridge Across Forever a little more of an ensemble. Mm -hmm. So each band member took one of the four songs on Bridge Across Forever and took the lead on ownership of it. Ah, Hmm, I didn't know that. And it's still an ensemble. You're not going to ever remove the influence of Stolt or Morse. But I was really eager to hear what that would sound like, coming from the pedigree of these four guys. That's a really good bit of trivia that I didn't know. I can actually now retrospectively hear that in the songs. Yep. So as they did with the first album, they fast-followed the studio album with a live recording. It was recorded at probably my favorite venue in the entire world, the Pop Podium 013 in Tilburg, Netherlands. <laughs> As someone who has been to that venue myself, I love that venue. It is an amazing place to see live music. Now, in terms of the content of this album, they are starting to have more of a catalog of their own, so there's not quite as much in the way of B-sides. There are still a few in there, but you're starting to get the typical, hey, we have an album and we're touring on it kind of vibe. So they did Live in America and then Live in Europe, and then they get into the cutesy naming thing here a little bit. So after this point in time, this is where a big change was about to happen that would forever impact Transatlantic. In mid-2002, so the band has been going for only a few years at this point, Neil Morse became a born-again Christian and, importantly for music, immediately left both Spock's beard and Transatlantic. Literally put it down and said, I'm walking away. The way that this actually came to be is that Neil's daughter had some medical issues and was due to have open heart surgery. Right. And there was a defect in the heart. And very shortly before the surgery, there was a prayer service. And the whole, as I understand it, healed itself. And Neil took this as an indication that he should devote his life to only creating works of art that were overtly religious and praiseworthy in nature. The bottom line for us is that this stops transatlantic in 2002 and we do not get more transatlantic until 
Neil said, God has now told me that I don't just have to do this religious thing. I can do mainstream music in some service way of God, or I need to get my skills out there into the world. But the bottom line for us in transatlantic land is that there's no new music until 2009. And so what are your all's thoughts on this aspect? Because I was not listening to transatlantic when this happened. And I'm just curious, what were your thoughts at the time? Did you think, yeah, it's done? Or did you have that kind of cynical view of, well, it's done for now until something happens and he needs to come back? So I come at it from a Spock's Beard aspect, because that was my primary band. And to me, Transatlantic was always the side project. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it stopped Transatlantic and Spock's Beard. And I was pretty upset about that, because they had just released Snow. And Spock's Beard Snow is one of the most remarkable albums ever made. And they didn't get to tour on it. It's a large double concept album. But Craig and I have seen him a couple of times. Mm Mm-hmm. And he'd played music from Testimony, which are his first couple of albums after this religious conversion. Yeah. Yeah. And he gives his testimony about, yeah, his daughter was born with a hole in her heart and it was healed before surgery. And that healed the hole in his heart. I mean, testimony is the right word. Yeah. He really is sort of on stage giving his testimony about his religious conversion. And the audience is right there with him. Yeah. It just kind of has this underlying current of stuff you might hear on a Christian rock station. Yeah. Right. It's during this period that Neil, he is creating music, but none of it is what we would consider mainstream. Mm -hmm. All of it is explicitly religious. And in fact, I've read in interviews where his mindset, his worldview on it was, it has to be explicitly in the service of God and the carrying of the testimony of Jesus. So I found this interesting quote on neilmorse.com, and it's talking about The Whirlwind, which would be the next album when he finally decides to come back. And it says, The stars that burn brightest often burn the fastest, though. After two years, the members went their separate ways, and Neil Morse left mainstream music altogether. The four remained friends, but when asked about the prospect of a reunion, responded that it was not likely. Fans kept the faith, but realists moved on. Right. So when I picked up The Whirlwind sometime in 2000, I didn't have an understanding of this whole period where fans were upset, like you guys were describing, or how great Simpty and Bridge Across Forever had been. I wasn't, quote unquote, tainted by that. And so for me, this was my first foray into Transatlantic, and it just blew my socks off. Mm Mm-hmm. And there may be some bias in my view of the different albums for that reason, but for me, I consider this Transatlantic's magnum opus, and I think it even outshines 2022's The Absolute Universe. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with you. I think it is the peak of their discography. There's just so much I love about it. Now, let's talk about the things that we all know that Tony loves, right? Epic length tracks, (laughs) a big theme stretching over two albums. Yeah. Presenting it as one track that's subdivided. When I was doing my research, I found an interesting bit of trivia that when they were tracking it, Neil was like, okay, guys, you know what? I can go do music again. Let's do another Transatlantic album. One of the conditions that Mike Portnoy had for coming back to Transatlantic is that Neil had to allow him to track the album, Hmm. specifically mark where the track points were. I guess either Mike wasn't happy with how that had been done in the past or had a very specific vision for it. But in the interview I read, Mike was very clear. He's like, I was listening to a lot of things on my iPod on shuffle, and it was very important to find the proper breakpoints in these big epic length tracks. Mm, Interesting. Again, I'm coming into this without any of the history of Neil. And even for me, on first listen, I'm five minutes into this thing, and I'm like, oh my gosh, here's this religious metaphor and that religious metaphor. That's that's kind of what I was talking about. It's kind of shrouded in this other metaphor of this world-ending cataclysmic storm, which is kind of cool in its own right. Like, it's got a little bit of a sci-fi vibe. Yeah, you like that stuff. But very much the, this is God descending punishment upon the infidel people of the world. That's very, very obvious. You can't really listen to this album without picking up on that. Mm-hmm. Yes. But still, what drew me in was how it was constructed, the quality of the playing, the vocals. 
I'm listening to Neil Morse talk about, to use the word we already did, testimony. If you take his testimony through this metaphor, I'm like, damn, that's still a really tasty bit, though. Yes. I don't really listen to words very much. I just love the music. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons I continue to be a fan of the old stuff and the new stuff, because I just sort of ignore it. Yeah. But it still sneaks in, because it's so obvious. It's not sneaking in, Craig. It's like opening the door. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's subtle at all. I think it's right in your face. The first sample I want to play from this album that I really love is from On the Prowl. Those lyrics in that sample are very evangelical, specifically that last line, send the whirlwind down until no one's on the fence. Right. You're either going to be a believer or not be a believer, right? It's that very fire and brimstone worldview. But oh my God, that playing is so good. I know, it's such a great song. (laughs) I mean, damn. The cynical part of me wants to be like, I hate everything about this. I'm like, but I love everything about this. I think that's a very common reaction to Neil Morse's music. Mm -hmm. I hear that same kind of push-pull when I talk to people on the cruises. I mean, I still buy and listen to his solo work. Innocence in Danger, Solo Scriptura, the Question Mark album. I mean, Similitude of a Dream, there's some incredible playing on that. It's stellar. Yeah, it sucks Mm -hmm. you in, even though the message can be very Bible-beating. But his writing and playing is just incredible. I get the impression he's one of those songwriters that, kind of like you imagine Paul McCartney would be, Mm -hmm. and that is melodies and songs just ooze out of his body, out of every pore. Yes. I'm going to sit down and write a great song or a great melody. That's a special kind of person. Clearly one of the most prolific people going. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Having said that, though, you can pick out a Neil Morse line from any lineup. Oh, yeah. yeah. I know that sound. And I don't know if it's the Neil Moore sound I'm hearing, because I don't listen to too much of his solo stuff, or if it's the quintessential transatlantic sound I'm hearing. But the next big piece I want to take from this album is, is it really happening? Mm-hmm. And there are two samples from this to really highlight the differences in sound on just this one track. This is a more quiet part of the track. And they just go on minutes and minutes and minutes like that. And it it just doesn't get old because it feels organic in the track. And I think that's just part of the catchiness of his writing. Mm -hmm. But as that song builds towards its end, then it goes out with this. I mean, oh my God. You know, if a line's worth playing once, why not play it 27 times? Frickin' Point Neumann. 
Jeez. I, I mean, <laughs> if you were listening to this podcast and you call yourself a fan of Prague, in my opinion, you cannot listen to that and go, that is some of the most stellar Prague playing I've heard. Yeah. Like, it is just amazing. And it really, listeners should listen to that entire track yeah. because the transition from that slow bit to the bit you just played is just beautifully done. And the other thing is, you really like the first part of the sample, the slower part, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is only two chords that are a whole step apart. Yeah. They're playing over and over and over. And the reason you like it is because they are such good musicians. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. That's one of the points where Roy Stolt really comes and stands out mm-hmm. on guitar, and so does Neil on keyboards. Just incredible. That is a really good point. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, that's the word I keep coming back to. Yeah. So, though their previous releases had had longer tracks with distinct movements, all of those things, I personally had not experienced it on this level before. And as a brief sidebar to Tony being a younger person and how I listen to music, this was released over double disc. I rip everything to MP3s. So, I immediately, upon getting this, ripped it down and made them one album. So, it flows from beginning to end. I have never, to this day, experienced this album with a break in the middle. Right. I do the same thing. So I also want to give a mention to the bonus disc for this album, particularly the cover of Hogweed. (laughs) Not only is it an amazing cover, but it was also the connective tissue that led me back in time to Genesis. And as expected, they ended up doing a tour album on this called The World Wind Tour in 2010, live in London. And since this album came out, Transatlantic has basically been back to being a regular band. And they followed up The Whirlwind with an album called Kaleidoscope five years later in 2014. And there's nothing wrong with it. If everything you know about Transatlantic is in Kaleidoscope, but in my opinion, it doesn't hit the way the other albums do. That's my experience with it. How did you experience Kaleidoscope? I like Kaleidoscope. A lot or just... Well, I agree with you that the whirlwind is their pinnacle. And so when you think about it that way, trying to follow up your pinnacle with another album is always hard. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, they're always going to get comparisons. But actually, one of the first cruises that Craig and I did. That's what I was going to say. They opened up with Kaleidoscope as the boat's pulling away from the dock. The album had just come out. And they played the entire album. And it has a very special place in my memory because of that. Absolutely. Into the Blue, I think, is a great multi-track piece. And I love Beyond the Sun and Black is the Sky. Mm. Beyond the Sun the lyrics are an elegy to Neil Morse's father. And when he played it live, he was in tears. And there wasn't a dry eye on the boat. And that's how the cruise started. On Kaleidoscope, on the extra CD, they have a bunch of covers, like they do on a couple of their other albums. Uh-huh. And one of the songs they do is And You and I, which is one of the best songs ever written, in my humble opinion. Yep. And John Anderson was on the cruise and those guys backed him up and played that song, and that was darn near life-changing for me. It was on the deck, and it was nighttime. It was amazing. It was insane. It yeah. was so good. And if you want a shorter track to hook your friends on Transatlantic, there is no better track than Black is the Sky, in my opinion. It's quintessential Transatlantic. So with that in mind, let's play a little bit of Black is the Sky, and I'd like to hear you talk about why you like it so much. Petro Avis, man, so good. Neil Moore synth lines. Yep. So, yeah, I would definitely pick that out as a transatlantic track, but yeah. it's just not hitting me the way it seems like it does you guys. What are you picking out that you're like, yeah, that's really, really great? Well, we got the same problem where we can only play a 30 second clip, and you took yours from the solos, and I really like the way the verses and the chorus is constructed. Mm-hmm. But in that one section you played, First of all, Torovis lays down this great, fast triplet eighth note line that's the foundation. And then this is one of the perfect examples of what I mean about Portnoy thinking outside the box. He's laying down this great double bass foundation underneath to go with Torovis. 
But he is also playing this little trebly splash symbol for emphasis. First, he's doing it on the and of the first tuplet. Then it's the and of the first and the third tuplet. And finally, he actually does it in quarter notes while everybody is playing with triplets. No other drummer that I follow thinks like that. Sure. Mm -hmm. And then really the whole point of that solo is Neil Morris building that solo synth line melody. To me, it's just key transatlantic. It's the things they do best. It's much like what you were saying, the last bit that was just the A to the G, the A to the G over and over again. Yeah. Any other drummer would be like, right. He just comes up with something that's what the hell. And it's tasty. It's awesome. It is tasty. Yeah. And now as part of backstory here, Around the time of The Whirlwind coming out, that's when Mike Portnoy famously leaves Dream Theater. That's right. With Mike not in Dream Theater full-time and focusing on other bands, a lot more of his concentration and effort and energy is going into Transatlantic at this time. And I think that definitely shows, as you guys were just talking about, his playing on this is stellar. Mm -hmm. So as they got used to doing studio album, they released a live album called Kaleidoscope. (laughs) in 2014 and then our next studio album doesn't drop until the absolute universe comes in late 2021 early 22 and if you've been a long time listener you heard us go through all of the hand wringing over this album now this album i love it's great but how it came out just pissed me off yeah so there's the one aspect of it that it's an obvious and explicit follow-up to the whirlwind so i was ecstatic for that reason but the execution was abysmal. Yes. There are two releases of the album. They're distinct. There's the 65-minute Breath of Life abridged version, and then there's the 90-minute Forevermore version. It would be one thing if the abridged version was just the long version with fewer tracks. That'd be fine. But they're not. It's tracks that are the same, but with different names or with different lyrics or someone different singing the lines. What it ended up being was if you were a real big Transatlantic fan and you wanted to have the full experience, you had to buy both. I have to say, though, when I put it on, as that huge Whirlwind fan, when I heard Heart Like a Whirlwind, this track I'm about to play, I was just overwhelmed. Like, I'm back home. When they get to that part where he goes, and your heart is like a whirlwind, it felt like a warm blanket being put on me. It's cool. What were your all's thoughts of this particular album? I don't know this album very well at all. I have no thoughts at all. This is the one transatlantic album that I did not buy. And it's for exactly that reason you just talked about. I really felt like I was being milked for something. (laughs) So I have listened to this album, but it's been from borrowing a buddy of mine's copy, which I don't normally do. Mm Mm-hmm. But I also had an opposite reaction to you. To me, the callbacks to the whirlwind feel like recycling old material, like this wasn't that original. When it became obvious the connections between the two albums, and I started to learn about some of the details of the distinctions between the two versions, despite all of my bitching, moaning, complaining, and hand-wringing, I bought both. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I listened to both mostly to compare them. Mostly I just listened to the Forevermore version. It does not quite reach the whirlwind feeling for me, but it's very close. Okay. The thing that pissed me off the most was how it was presented, especially with the interviews at the time. Mike would say something, and then Neil would say something, and it was presented in these weird, contradictory ways, and yes. made mm-hmm. purchasing it very, very difficult. If they hadn't done all that BS, I don't know if I would even have much of a complaint about this album, because the music, to me, is good. Hmm. That brings us to today. When we were talking about Mike Portnoy rejoining Dream Theater, I'm a little anxious about what this means for the future. So that's Transatlantic, folks. Woohoo! Yeah, thank you guys for humoring me and letting me do this. Heck yeah. Yeah, thank you, Tony. This is awesome. As we go out, we usually ask whoever is presenting to talk a little bit about recommendations. One is The Whirlwind. When you buy it, you can get the deluxe edition. I have yet to find a streaming service that has the deluxe edition. 
Number two is The Absolute Universe, The Twin Child to the Whirlwind. Specifically, listen to the Forevermore version. And then the third one is going to be kind of a surprise, but Lee already talked about this. I recommend going and listening to Snow by Spock's Beard. Wow, good choice. I didn't really make the case for, but I do think leads directly into what you end up hearing later in Transatlantic. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Hmm. So as we exit, don't forget you can find us on Instagram and the platform previously known as Twitter at UP3Show. We're also on Mastodon.Social at UP3Show. And you can tell me about all the things that you enjoyed or didn't enjoy about this particular episode at UP3Show at gmail.com. I definitely want to hear from you, as we all do. Tell us what kind of topics you'd like to cover. If you are an indie band and you would like to be featured on Unheard Of, please reach out and let us know. We would love to feature your music here on the show. If you want to show us some support, it's super easy. You can support us non-financially by subscribing to the podcast on up3show.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, if on whatever platform it is, take a moment, write a review. We would really, really appreciate it. If you would like to support the show financially, we're on Patreon at patreon.com slash up3show. And we'll talk to you next month. Bye, guys. Bye. See ya. Hey, folks. Tony here. If you made it this far, congratulations. You're getting everything you can out of this podcast episode. As a reminder, we're a podcast about commentary and opinion on prog music. We use samples of music to make our point and to teach others. We make no claim of copyright to any of the music featured in our samples and strongly recommend that you support the artists we talk about by buying their albums and merchandise or seeing them live. If you're an artist and you'd like for us to change how we've used your content on the show, please contact us directly so that we can work together.